Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today we're going to talk about community-acquired pneumonia, a very common diagnosis in pediatricians' offices, in the emergency department, and on inpatient teams. Let's go ahead and jump right in and talk about clinical presentation. And the big picture is that there is no classic set of signs and symptoms that will help make the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. But some good generalities to keep in mind include the fact that you should know that viral lung infections are far more common in babies and preschoolers. Yes, you will see atypical bacteria, you know, mycoplasma and school age kids, but opposed to the fever and cough combo, these atypical infections often come with more extrapulmonary issues like photophobia, headache, and rash. Some children with a recent upper respiratory infection will develop a community-acquired pneumonia because of secondary superinfection. This also happens with otitis media, as you know. Vaccines reduce the risk of pneumonia from Haemophilus influenza type B and Streptococcus pneumoniae, but not completely for all subtypes of each. Overall, strep pneumoniae is the most common bacterial cause. Others include Moraxella catarrhalis and non-typable Haemophilus influenzae. Staph aureus, especially methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, is an important pathogen in about 5% of community-acquired pneumonia. These are very sick children often that have concurrent flu and may end up in the ICU. So there are some exam findings that are more correlative with pneumonia than others. These include tachypnea, increased work of breathing, hypoxemia, and adventitious lung sounds. These are the focal crackles and rails. Interestingly, tachypnea, and conversely not being tachypneic, can help rule in or exclude pneumonia. Other supportive findings that you'll commonly see include fever, cough, localized decreased breath sounds, and egophonic or percussive changes, which is really impossible to do in small children. Ultimately, and overall, the absence of tachypnea is one of the most useful clinical findings for ruling out community-acquired pneumonia in children. In febrile children, the negative predictive value of a non-tachypnic child having community-acquired pneumonia is above 97%. The positive predictive value in a febrile tachypneic child is only about 20%. A lot of this is due to the fact that respiratory rate can increase 8 to 10 breaths per minute for each degree above normal in Celsius. In younger children, the World Health Organization specifies normal, non-febrile respiratory rates as about 25 to 40 breaths per minute in kids aged 2 to 12 months, with tachypnea being above 50, and in children 1 to 5 years of age, 20 to 30 breaths per minute, with tachypnea being above 40 breaths per minute. You really need other findings in the febrile child to more reliably diagnose pneumonia, like retractions, grunting, nasal flaring, focal crackles, etc., Overall, combinations of exam findings are more helpful in making the diagnosis. So if you have a kid with fever and two of the above symptoms without a past history of asthma, perhaps, well, then your likelihood of pneumonia is higher. Per the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines, heretofore known as IDSA, pulse oximetry should be performed in all children with pneumonia and suspected hypoxemia. So the presence of hypoxemia should guide decisions regarding the site of care and further diagnostic testing. This recommendation is strong and based on moderate quality evidence. So don't forget the pulse ox. In terms of assessing severity of illness, there are criteria that the IDSA has set aside. 
The major criteria for pneumonia severity include the need for invasive mechanical ventilation, fluid refractory shock, acute need for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, you know, like CPAP, um, hypoxemia requiring FiO2 greater than the inspired concentration or flow feasible in the general care area, which is kind of a resource issue. Then there's some other criteria which you're far more likely to see. So respiratory rate higher than the WHO classification for age, periods of apnea, increased worker breathing, retractions, dyspnea, nasal flaring, and grunting, multi-lobar infiltrates, altered mental status, hypotension, the presence of an effusion, comorbid conditions like sickle cell disease, immunosuppression, um, and an unexplained metabolic acidosis. There's not really one criteria that will help make a disposition decision for you, so you're really going to have to do a good job gathering both historical and clinical information. All right, let's move on and talk about x-rays in community-acquired pneumonia. So there are situations, many of them in fact, where you do not need an x-ray to make a diagnosis of pneumonia. So if you think the child clinically has it and they don't have severe disease, then you don't really need an x-ray. You can just start treatment, and we'll talk about treatment shortly. The 2011 IDSA guidelines state that a patient with a clinical pneumonia that can be treated in the outpatient setting does not need an x-ray. And this doesn't matter if you're in an office, urgent care, or in an ED. You should get an x-ray and preferably a two-view that includes an AP and lateral shots in a patient with hypoxemia or respiratory distress. And the IDSA states that signs of respiratory distress include tachypnea, dyspnea, retractions, grunting, nasal flaring, periods of apnea, altered mental status, and pulse ox less than 90% on room air. It's also important to obtain an x-ray in patients who have failed outpatient antibiotic treatment, or if you're concerned that they have a complication such as infusion, empyema, necrotizing pneumonia, or sepsis. So what do you see on these x-rays? Well, focal consolidation is what you'll see most commonly, and it's actually pretty specific for community-acquired pneumonia. Of course, focal areas of atelectasis can look like a consolidated pneumonia, and these areas of atelectasis are seen in about one-quarter bronchiolitis patients who had an x-ray, but you're not getting an x-ray when you clinically think the patient has bronchiolitis, right? So overall, a lobar infiltrate is specific, but it's not sensitive for a bacterial pneumonia. So it helps you rule it in, but the absence of it doesn't help you rule it out. So on plain radiographs, you'll see a few different patterns, and I've got images of these on PEMblog.com. So the round pneumonia is seen most commonly in young children. This is about a mean age of five years, so your average kindergartner. And they're classically associated with streptococcus pneumoniae. The consolidation is focal and round, usually less than three centimeters and more often posterior. They look incredibly circular, and it's actually amazing that this happens in the human body. It's thought that this unique shape occurs in children because of the lack of interalveolar communication and collateral airways, which in adults leads to the infection to spread throughout the lobe. In young children, you'll see these more hyperlocal spread, and the infection is well contained within a very interesting circular space. Lobar consolidation is what most folks think of when they think of pneumonia on x-ray. This is where one lobe or more than one lobe have a focal area of opacity. Sometimes it can be subtle. You know, remember that, you know, x-rays are 2D pictures of 3D structures, so you may just see a little bit of fuzziness in the lobe. Other times they may be thick and dense and obscure 
interpretation of the heart border if it's right next to a lower lobe. So things of the same density, like pus inside of a lung and the mediastinum, will appear to be the same opacity on an x-ray. So when you're looking at a film, if you see an opaque area where there should be air and you're worried about pneumonia, that's probably a lobar consolidation. Pleural fusion, it's a complication of community-acquired pneumonia, and it consists of fluid in the potential pleural space. You'll generally see them inferiorly, and they'll obscure the normal angles of the diaphragm. Some small effusions can be very subtle. And then a necrotizing pneumonia is a very serious complication of community-acquired pneumonia. This is often seen in pandemic influenza and infections that have staph aureus as well. Patients will have pneumatoceles, diffuse opacification, uh, large effusions, essentially necrotic tissue within the lung itself. So there are other modalities that will help you diagnose community-acquired pneumonia. So ultrasound can certainly see pleural fusions when it's not clear based on the H&P and chest X-ray. Recent studies have shown that ultrasound may be helpful in making the diagnosis of uncomplicated pneumonia as well. A meta-analysis from Pareda showed a sensitivity of 96% and a specificity of 93% and positive and negative likelihood ratios of 15 and 0.06. Now, the studies included in this meta-analysis did have a small sample size overall. So ultrasound is not ready to replace chest X-ray quite yet, but the skilled ultrasonographer can pick up a community-acquired pneumonia. CT scans are useful in the children with complicated or necrotizing pneumonia and can help assess the severity of disease and provide much-needed information for more invasive management. Okay, so we've talked about imaging. Let's move on to labs. And when it comes to diagnosing community-acquired pneumonia in an outpatient urgent care or ED setting where you're going to send the kid home, you don't need any labs. But if you're going to admit a patient to the hospital... There is one lab that the IDSA recommends above all others, and that actually is the blood culture, which may come as a bit of a surprise to some of my colleagues that treat mostly adults. So the 2011 IDSA guidelines state that children who could be managed as an outpatient do not need a blood culture. I'll reiterate that again. If you're going to send a kid home on oral antibiotics, you don't need a blood culture, you don't need labs. Important to note that most of this research was done after the introduction of the Haemophilus influenza B conjugate vaccine, but before the introduction of the routine pneumococcal vaccination. So there may be a little bit of a historical bias. So in these studies, rates of bacteremia in patients managed as an outpatient were less than 2%. Studies have suggested the number of true positive blood cultures for children with community-acquired pneumonia managed as an outpatient in the pneumococcal vaccination era is far less than 1%. Now, the 2011 IDSA guidelines recommend that children admitted with community-acquired pneumonia should definitely have a blood culture drawn. The evidence cited in this recommendation also included many studies before the routine pneumococcal vaccination studies. Historically, blood cultures were not necessarily routinely obtained. So the majority of these studies cited a true positive blood culture rate on these admitted kids from about 1.5% to 3.5%. In cases of complicated community-acquired pneumonia, empyema, lung abscess, necrotizing pneumonia, described a positive blood culture rate of about 13 to 14%, so much higher. There are some that would argue that you should really only get blood cultures 
for those patients as opposed to the more well-appearing ones. In 2012, there was a case control study that was performed to determine the prevalence of bacteremia in children presenting with community-acquired pneumonia to the emergency department. This is from Shaw et al. In this study, 877 patients were diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia, 291 had a blood culture drawn, and of those 291, 227 were admitted, and 64 were sent home. Of the 64 cases sent home, zero had a positive blood culture. Of the 227 cases admitted, only six, so just under 3%, had a positive blood culture. Of the six cases with bacteremia, four of the six resulted in narrowing from broad-spectrum to narrow-spectrum antibiotics, and only one of the six resulted in the team broadening the coverage. The rate of bacteremia in patients with complicated pneumonia in this study was 13%, which is similar to the rate in the earlier studies. So at this point, the IDSA recommends blood culture for all children admitted with community-acquired pneumonia, but I advise you to look at the literature yourself. And what about some of the other labs? Well, CBC, right? They have an infection, so you should get one. Well, let's just say that the utilization of CBC and the diagnostic workup of pediatric community-acquired pneumonia varies widely between U.S. pediatric emergency departments. Rates range anywhere from 11 to 54 percent. The 2011 IDSA guidelines do not support the routine use of CBC in the evaluation of pneumonia. They've got low-quality evidence that CBC may be helpful in more severe cases, but otherwise, it doesn't make a giant difference. Leukocyte count alone is both a poor predictor for etiology, bacterial versus viral, and for severity. Perhaps ANC and leukocyte count, along with other biomarkers, may help more, but really its role in determining the severity of pneumonia appears minimal. And speaking of biomarkers, well, I'm certain you're familiar with C-reactive protein and procalcitonin. Let's talk about CRP first. So it's really not that helpful, especially on its own, in terms of predicting severity. 2008 meta-analysis from Flood et al. of greater than 1,200 pediatric patients showed that CRP values of 4 to 6 were very weak predictors of bacterial etiology. The odds ratio in that was 2.58, with a positive predictive value of only 64%. In a 2014 prospective cohort of greater than 400 pediatric patients admitted with community-acquired pneumonia, a CRP of greater than 8 had an odds ratio of 3.6 for bacterial as opposed to viral pneumonia. In that study as well, a CRP of less than 2 was not able to effectively rule out bacterial infections. So, like other situations, CRP probably has more value when you combine it with other biomarkers. But what that ideal combination is, we don't quite know. A study I just mentioned from Elmraid et al., a combined model with CRP greater than 8 and an ANC greater than 10,000 was highly specific and moderately sensitive for bacterial lung infection, sensitivity of 75% and a specificity of 89%. So in summary, the routine use of CRP in the evaluation of community-acquired pneumonia is not officially recommended in the 2011 IDSA guidelines. It may have utility in severe cases to track response to therapy and resolution of disease. So let's talk about procalcitonin. It's been gaining in popularity over the last several years. In regards to determining the etiology of pediatric community-acquired pneumonia, it's shown promise, but results have been conflicting. 
Uh, many studies have concluded that procalcitonin may be better than CRP in detecting bacterial versus viral pneumonia. But alone, it doesn't really have the greatest utility in determining pneumonia etiology. If you combine procalcitonin with CBC or urinary antigen tests, you may increase its effectiveness, but the jury's still out. You're probably wondering yourself, well, how easy is it to actually figure out what bacteria is causing the pneumonia in a kid to begin with? And it's actually really hard. Young children don't produce a lot of sputum. There's a really high frequency of viral infections in the smallest ones. And we've got limitations in current diagnostic testing methods. And yeah, I mean, you can have a bacterial and viral mixed picture as well. So there's lots of heterogeneity in regards to etiologic diagnostic methods between studies. And so you see the conflicting data in the published literature. So viruses, again, are an incredibly common cause of pediatric lung infections, especially in children's aged three months to five years, accounting for more than half of cases. Use of viral testing varies widely according to different care environments. Some places send RSVs all the time. Other places don't. Ultimately, if you think a child has bronchiolitis, for instance, there's no value in necessarily knowing which virus is causing it. So save the money and don't send the RSV test. Now, the IDSA does recommend the use of rapid influenza testing during flu season, not non-influenza viral testing unless it will truly alter clinical management. These non-influenza viral testing panels are often very expensive and don't come back right away anyway. The IDSA provided a weak recommendation based on low-quality evidence for sputum cultures in hospitalized children because it's actually hard for them to produce sputum so that you can do a gram stain. Children, especially those younger than five or six, can't expectorate all that well. They're certainly not Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Two-thirds of children under the age of five may actually be colonized with streptococcus pneumonia anyway, so you're going to contaminate sputum specimens and reduce their utility. The future probably includes gene expression profiles, and their ability to serve as markers for severity of illness will likely be very important in the near future. No lab work needs to be performed on children with pneumonia who meet criteria to be discharged home from your office, urgent care, or emergency department. Currently, the IDSA does recommend that a blood culture should be obtained in children with pneumonia that require admission. The overall true positive blood culture rate for children hospitalized pneumonia is about 1.5 to 3.5%, but increased to over 13% in children with complicated pneumonia. CBC has no utility in the assessment of pneumonia severity. Inflammatory markers like CRP and procalcitonin alone can't accurately predict disease etiology, you know, distinguishing between viral and bacterial. If you combine them with CBC, ANC, urine antigen tests, and other studies, you may get increased specificity in terms of diagnosing bacterial pneumonia. But again, the research is incomplete at this time. Inflammatory markers aren't able to accurately predict disease severity, but you may be able to use them in tracking response to treatment in more severe cases. Routine viral testing is not helpful, but the IDSA does recommend rapid influenza testing when disease prevalence is very high where you're working. And children over five years of age that can expectorate sputum 
should give a sputum culture with gram stains performed if they're admitted, but not in the emergency department if you're going to send them home. All right, and last but not least, let's talk about treatment. First, let's talk about disposition. So who should be admitted? Well, the sickest kids, right? So babies under three to six months of age with community-acquired pneumonia should be admitted unless they look absolutely perfect. So babies with chlamydia trachomatis can look very well. They can be cared for at home, but really a child with a loculated lobar pneumonia who's under a half year of age needs to look darn good before you consider uh, sending them home. Some good general rules for admitting children also include whether or not the patient is hypoxic, so a sat less than 90% on room air, if they are moderately dehydrated or worse, if they have moderate to severe respiratory distress, if they've got a complicated pneumonia, you know, if they just look septic or in shock, if they've got a concerning past medical history like genetic syndromes, severe cerebral palsy, cardiac disease, and the patient has failed outpatient therapy. And generally, this means that they've worsened or had little to no response by 48 to 72 hours. And really make sure you assess whether or not the kid is actually getting the medicine. It's hard to get a drug into a two-year-old's mouth and make it stay in there. So antibiotic failure does not mean that the kid's spitting out the drug. It actually means that it's getting into their body and the kid is clinically worsening. And speaking of those delicious tasting medicines, well, let's talk about what to use to treat. So outpatient treatment, first line therapy is amoxicillin, 90 milligram per kilogram per day divided twice or three times a day. If the patient's had amoxicillin in the past 30 days, you can use amoxicillin clavulanate, augmentin. For a patient with a penicillin allergy, non-type 1 hypersensitivity, not anaphylaxis, ceftonir or cefpidoxime. Patient with anaphylaxis to penicillins, your outpatient options are levofloxacin, clinda, erythromycin, azithromycin, or clarithromycin. And if you work in a community where pneumococcus has a very, 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 very high resistance to penicillins, you want to consider levofloxacin and linazolid. So in inpatient treatment, it's divided really based on age. So if a kid is one to six months of age and you don't think it's Staph aureus or Chlamydia trachomatis, ceftriaxone or cefotaxime. If it's Chlamydia trachomatis, azithromycin. Kids older than six months on an inpatient. If you're dealing with common causes like strep pneumo, Moraxella, and H. flu, the first choice is ampicillin. It's 150 to 200 milligrams per kilogram per day in four divided doses. You can also use penicillin G, cefotaxime, or ceftriaxone. If you think mycoplasma or chlamydia pneumonias may be involved, you would add one of the agents in combination with ampicillin, ceftriaxone, or one of the agents from above. And these include azithromycin, erythromycin, or levofloxacin. For severe pneumonia, you're looking at ceftriaxone or cefotaxime plus azithromycin, erythromycin, or doxycycline. If you think the kid has really severe pneumonia and they're in the ICU, you know, you're thinking staph aureus, you're going to do vanc and ceftriaxone and azithro and maybe even nafcillin, and yes, even an antiviral for influenza. If a kid has an abscess or empyema, you're looking at ceftriaxone or cefotaxime plus clinda or vanc. But in short, you're going to see far less of the latter 
and more of the child with uncomplicated pneumonia. So your first go-tos in the non-penicillin allergic patient are amoxicillin for outpatients and ampicillin for inpatients. All right, so that's all for now on community-acquired pneumonia in children. There's lots of emerging information, but right now, if you're gonna read one document, I recommend looking at the 2011 Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines. It'll give you a great framework for the current treatment recommendations. As always, this has been Brad Sobolewski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at PEMTweets and check out PEMblog.com for great pediatric emergency medicine educational content. Leave a review on iTunes. I'd very much appreciate the feedback. And certainly, let me know what kind of content you'd like to hear in the future. Take care and see you next time.